Hello and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members, exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Today we're going to be talking about accountability and the efforts of big multilateral development banks, such as the Asian Development Bank, to be more accountable to private citizens, specifically to the people affected by the massive projects that these banks fund, and the balance that the banks must try to achieve between making a difference to vulnerable communities and not overstepping the sovereignty of its member states. To explain how these accountability mechanisms work, I am joined by Susan Park, Professor of Global Governance at the University of Sydney. Susan is an international relations expert within the School of Social and Political Sciences and is currently investigating the accountability processes of corporations, governments and civil societies in the prelude to environmental catastrophes. Her forthcoming book, titled Addressing Environmental and Social Harm Through the Independent Accountability Mechanisms of the Multilateral Development Banks, is about whether we can achieve environmental justice through global grievance mechanisms. Susan, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Susan, could you start by setting the scene for us by explaining what exactly you mean by global governance and the relationship it has with environmental and social safeguarding policies? It's two words, global governance, but it really seeks to encapture a whole lot more than that. So pretty much since the late 1980s, we've seen a dramatic shift towards transnational activity, activity taking place across borders, but also at the international level. So the level of intergovernmental organisations, the UN, the Asian Development Bank and so on. The term global governance really tries to capture all of the activity that's happening across borders as well as at the international level. So it really does try and encapsulate the activities of private citizens, environmental and human rights NGOs, development activity that crosses borders, but also the activities of multinational corporations, the activities of states, and the activities of international organizations like the Asian Development Bank. That's what we mean by global governance. But in relation to the environmental and social standards really, again, stemming from the 1990s, you see this massive retreat of the state, this idea that multinational corporations can actually govern themselves, can be self-regulated, and that this starts to take place at the international level. And that's where we see a push by primarily non-government organisations, NGOs really pushing to hold banks to account, corporations to account, for harming communities and their environments. I imagine that doing this sort of global work is quite difficult for you as a researcher because it's difficult to put borders around what you're looking at, whereas the nation state has very clearly defined borders that you can work in if you're studying, for example, Singapore or Malaysia. Working across borders must certainly pose a lot of challenges in terms of methodology and perhaps even research permits and defining the boundaries of what you're going to look at. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, one of the benefits of going global is that you see the same patterns playing out in different regions in the world. 
And if you look at Southeast Asia, for example, the Asian Development Bank, a lot of their template for how they were going to undertake their activities was based on the World Bank. Um, so that was something, you know, post-World War II about how to undertake international development finance and how to promote economic growth around the world. And so the Asian Development Bank took some of those ideas to apply it to a very specific region, a region with high poverty levels, high levels of mistrust. You know, you had the Cold War, um, you had states becoming independent and trying to defend their independence. So you see the sort of global ideas being applied and implemented in a very regional specific way. Yes, so even though your work is global in nature, there are lots of wonderful examples from Southeast Asia. So perhaps we might go into those in a bit more detail now. So can you tell us more about the Asian Development Bank? You've said that it came out of this post-Cold War era. What does it do? And could you tell us more about the methods and the models that it draws on? Yes, so the Asian Development Bank was created in 1966. And this was really an attempt to shore up cooperation in the region and to have a regional development bank. So I mentioned the World Bank before. That's a global institution for international development finance. So the Asian Development Bank was a Japanese initiative and it was really an attempt to promote economic growth in the region by providing this development finance. So two aims, economic growth for member countries and cooperation in the Asia Pacific. And so what it does is to provide development finance, money for development projects in developing countries. And the aim of doing that is really around the key things that were seen to be necessary for the region in the 1960s. So primarily infrastructure, roads, railways, and energy, you know, the types of things that are actually still pertinent today. If I may ask, how does one become a member of the Asian Development Bank? Is it compulsory? Are there branches? Are there accounts? How does it work in practice? That's a really great question. Funnily enough, the first thing you have to do is join the International Monetary Fund. So if you're a member of the International Monetary Fund, and pretty much most uh, states in the region are, then you are eligible to join the Asian Development Bank. You don't have to, but most states do believe it's in their interest to be a member. And what they do is they agree to invest some money in the Asian Development Bank. So it's pretty much based on a $1, one vote system. So the amount of money that you put in, Australia is, I think, now the fourth largest donor in the Asian Development Bank. The amount of money you put in determines how much say your country has in the policies of the institution. And so what this means is that the member states vote on which projects should go ahead, and they also determine the general policy direction. So should we have environmental and social safeguard policies? Should we have an accountability mechanism? How much should we lend to certain countries? For example, India is a massive country with huge needs. And so there was a general agreement that not too much money should be lent to India to make way for all of the other countries that were also members that also had development needs. Thank you for explaining that. Now, research shows that multilateral development banks have been identified as financing development projects that have a very high negative impact on the natural environment and on communities. What sort of impacts would we expect to see coming from these large-scale infrastructure projects that you mentioned earlier, such as railways, energy, perhaps dams, hydropower? 
You actually see quite a lot of environmental and social impacts. And one of the two largest is involuntary resettlement, forcible movement of people to make room for an infrastructure project. There are loads of examples in the region, a lot of hydropower, a lot of dams where people are basically forced out of their traditional lands to make way for the dams. These have adverse implications depending on the dam, depending on the dam height, depending on how much water is stored, can have negative impacts on the local flora and fauna, particularly fish, which Indigenous people might be reliant upon for their nutrition, specific needs and cultural beliefs. So there's sort of multiple impacts, and these can be short, medium and long-term impacts in terms of the natural course of the river, for example. So dams and hydropower is a big one, but it's really in the Asian Development Bank's case really about infrastructure and energy. So we see a lot of projects that are just around building highways and building highways can actually have a huge implication. If you cut through farmers' lands, farmers that are on subsistence levels, where they make claims about grievance, having their lands cut in half so they can't actually get their livestock to pasture. And that can mean the difference between life and death, right? The ability to actually farm the small amount that you have. Much larger cases, railways is another one where you see the forcible movement of up to 20,000 people in a case in Cambodia. And different Uh, impacts for different people. So some people moved to sites that were the same, if not better, than where they were living near the new railway, and others who were forced into a very adverse condition, so much worse than the livelihood that they had prior to the project. So far away from employment, far away from arable land that they could use for their own, growing their own food, far away from services for their children to go to school, but also dangerous conditions um, where places that are inappropriate for children in unsafe areas that can ultimately have led to children dying by falling into waterways that have not been sealed off. So there are a huge number of impacts that need to be taken into account when international development finance is provided for development projects. These are obviously completely unacceptable outcomes arising from these sort of big projects, big development projects, but it wasn't until 1995 that the Asian Development Bank created what they call an inspection function, which was established to provide recourse to people that might be affected by a development project financed by the bank. What prompted the creation of this function and and why did it take until 1995 for them to start thinking about this? You know, it's really surprising when you think about it that there wasn't anything prior to that. At the very basis of the Asian Development Bank, like a lot of other international organisations, is that they argue that they are accountable to their member states, which means that they generally argue that they don't need to listen to people uh, that they are directly affecting. They don't need to listen to NGOs and they they only really listen to what their member states want. So as far as the Asian Development Bank was concerned, they were being held accountable because they were doing what their member states wanted by providing loans for the projects that they wanted. And so that's a very traditional understanding of accountability, that it is directly representative based on who is elected within those countries. Um, But of course, our understanding of accountability has changed a lot around the fact that who is directly affected should also have a say in what is happening to them. 
And so in 1995, the Asian Development Bank created the inspection function. And it did so for two reasons. One, that it started to become aware of anti-ADB sentiment in the region with people protesting how the Asian Development Bank was enforcing certain conditions for its loans. And again, this was being repeated against the World Bank as well. But also because donors like the United States in part as a result of the knowledge coming from local NGOs to NGOs in the United States, really took up those ideas that people should have the right to have a say about what was happening to them. So the United States and some other donor countries within the Asian Development Bank really started pushing hard to listen to people in the region about what was happening to them. And that led to a sort of demand by those donors that unless the Asian Development Bank creates such a mechanism, that they would start to not provide more funding. I think it's really interesting how significant the role of activists has been in raising awareness of the impact of these ADB finance projects on the natural environment and vulnerable communities. It's actually a very good news story. But in terms of the mechanism that was introduced in 1995, how effective was it? It's a great question. It was not very effective at all. Essentially what the Asian Development Bank did, and I think this really stems from what some people call executive multilateralism, this idea that you're only responsible to the countries that comprise the institutions and therefore you you didn't have to tell anyone else what you were doing and and you could justify being non-transparent. It's exactly the way that the Asian Development Bank undertook their first accountability mechanism, the inspection function. So what they did was create a mechanism whereby people could complain about um, what was happening to them as a result of a project being financed by the Asian Development Bank. They could complain, but it was heard by a panel that was comprised of a mixture of developing and developed member states. And they ultimately tended to reject most of the claims, not even investigating them, but just basically saying, well, it doesn't seem reasonable There doesn't seem to be enough information. So we're just not going to investigate them. You're done. It's quite astonishing, actually, the hubris evident there. I understand that there was actually only one investigation carried out under this mechanism, and that was the Samut Prakan case in Thailand in 2001. What was interesting about this case? What what did the investigation reveal? It was a wastewater treatment plant that was being implemented in Thailand, and essentially the mayor and, and citizens of Klong Dam argued that the environmental impacts, particularly effluence and toxicity, was really disturbing. And they, they wanted the Asian Development Bank to investigate it, to determine whether or not that was actually what should be happening or whether or not there should be an investigation into preventing those types of harms. So it went to the board inspection committee and, and they essentially agreed that there should be an investigation. And this is really the first time they'd agreed that that should happen, that there should be an investigation. And it really challenged member states. In particular, Thailand said, well, no, you can't actually come into our country and investigate this ADB finance project because we want to make sure that any losses we make holding up the project will be borne by the Asian Development Bank. And so there was an immediate standoff really, between the bank and Thailand as a member state, saying that this investigation, the development project should be protected. And so it really led to a sort of split 
at the board of executive directors. So all of the member states sit on the board and they all determine whether or not this investigation should go ahead. And ultimately, it was only a desk review. They couldn't actually get into the country to talk to people about what was happening on the ground. And as we all know, that's the most important thing. You need to talk to people about what is happening. Otherwise, it's all just hearsay. And they still identified that six out of seven safeguard policies were being breached. And and this led to a complete denial by the bank that there was any problem and uh, a split between donors and developing countries. What improvements has the Asian Development Bank made to its accountability mechanism since 1995? I think there's a couple of improvements. One is that they tried to be much more independent in terms of being able to decide whether or not a claim was bona fide, whether or not there was something that needed to be investigated. And that's one of the biggest improvements that took place in 2003 when they created the new version called the accountability mechanism. So that was a dramatic improvement. The second thing they did was actually open up to two people in the region. It was a a widespread consultation process. It's one of the largest that the Asian Development Bank has actually ever done, where they went um, to different parts of the region and invited civil society members to tell them what sort of mechanism they wanted. This is really unique. It created a shift in how we understand accountability mechanisms for these multilateral development banks. Because people in the region said, you know, we really don't like this style of blame. We don't like to say it's the bank's fault, it's our country's fault about what is happening to us. What we want is a chance to sit down and talk about the problem and how to resolve it. And so the Asian Development Bank was really a first mover in creating what they called a problem-solving function, whereby people could complain, somebody would come out, to negotiate and discuss from the Asian Development Bank, from the project sponsor, so usually the Department of Energy or Department of Transport from that particular country, and they would sit down and work through what the problems were, whether or not they could find a way to solve the problem. And so that was sort of the first step. Now, if you wanted to, you could still go to an investigation. And so the problem-solving function was really what people in the region wanted. That was the second major innovation. The third major innovation, and this is something that the Asian Development Bank has done in some ways much better than any banks in any of the other regions, is actually monitoring compliance after an investigation. And so what the bank has done is when they did start actually undertaking investigations to decide who was at fault, and if it was the bank's fault, what were they at fault for, they could identify that a certain number of policies had been breached. And then they actually had the power, almost no other independent mechanism at that stage did, had the power to monitor whether or not the bank had actually corrected those problems and brought the project back into compliance. So whether or not they were doing the right thing, and this is probably the most powerful thing that an accountability mechanism can do, because you can listen to people and then ignore them. You can identify that the bank was at fault and do nothing. But actually monitoring to enforce that behaviour and fix those problems made the Asian Development Bank's mechanism very, very powerful. How effective has this new accountability mechanism introduced in 2003 been in terms of actually bringing improvements to affected people or, or is it simply an opportunity for them to have their voices heard? It is about being heard 
all of the mechanisms state very, very clearly that they are there to provide recourse, the ability for people to air their grievances. They make no guarantee about providing redress or remedy for the problem, which is why the monitoring is so important. So if you have been identified as breaching a policy, that you can actually do something to correct it and have people looking over your shoulder to determine that you've done it. So that's a that's a really important process and it's a really important outcome for people that make claims. But we also have to recognise that a number of people that make claims aren't satisfied with the process and they do argue that the accountability mechanism, particularly the problem-solving function, is still there to help advance the project and is not always there to address people's needs unless they align with that broader project. Does the model have limitations? It's still facing this fundamental challenge of holding its parent institution to account and surely it's not a perfect mechanism. So all of the accountability mechanisms have a sort of reviews every three and five years to determine whether or not the mechanisms are working and how they can be improved. And so some of the improvements that took place in 2003 were changed or rolled back in 2012. So one of the improvements that I mentioned was this monitoring capacity. What the Asian Development Bank decided was that that was costing a lot of money and taking a lot of time. So they actually reduced the amount of monitoring that could be done if an investigation found that the Asian Development Bank was breaching its own policies. So I find that to be a little bit of a concern that all of a sudden you're putting these brakes on a very powerful mechanism. And that could be for a reason. But also the review tried to provide greater oversight of the accountability mechanism itself. And they gave the the executive board, member states, more say over the independence of the accountability mechanism. And so that's a bit of a concern in terms of whether or not the mechanism is free and independent as it says it is to make the kinds of decisions, hard decisions that it has to do. Uh, How well accepted is this accountability mechanism? You said that it was developed out of an extensive process of consultation within the region, but how's it been accepted by ADB staff and by member states? It's always a challenge when you create a new mechanism to look over people's shoulder, and nobody likes that. Um, Of course, it's very, very difficult, though, to identify particular individuals because, as we know, investment projects are undertaken by teams devolving down to specific individuals can be quite difficult. But in in the Samat Prakan case, there were people that were adversely affected as staff members of ADB. But as interviewees told me, you know, that was really short-lived. Those people went on to have really great careers within the bank nonetheless. Now, outside the bank and the World Bank, for example, some people that have been through investigations of the projects that they've worked on sort of use it as a badge of pride that they've survived an investigation So there's a lot of scepticism, mixed understandings within the bank about how these processes work. And certainly from 2012 onwards, there's a lot of effort on behalf of the accountability mechanism to do a lot of in-reach to explain to people what they do and how they do it and why they do it. My last question is about whether pursuing a claim through one of these accountability mechanisms, if you are an affected person or from one of these vulnerable communities that have had, for example, a highway put through your your farming land and you've lost your livelihood, is pursuing a claim the best option or are there other ways of seeking recourse and redress? 
I think it's a great question because there's not been enough in terms of providing the full amount of information to people that might want to make a claim. And I know NGOs are actually really good on this um, because they give the 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 positive outcomes plus the negative outcomes. And so NGOs were really, really strong in pushing to have these accountability mechanisms, but they're really not shy in saying, look, this might not get you what you want. People do need to be aware. I think that the problem solving is a worthwhile path to take, but I know a lot of banks actually say that you can't make a claim if you're going through the courts already. So we can't engage in mediation with you. We can't engage in a problem solving process or you can't go through a compliance investigation. So they really stop it short and say, that's up to what is happening within your country and you need to deal with it that way. Of course, it gets a bit tricky because you need to know what sort of claim you're making. And it was really hard at the beginning because you used to have to send a letter. It had to be in English and you had to know what policies were being breached. Now, that's all changed dramatically, thank goodness. So you can send an email, you can make a phone call. They have a complaints receiving officer. And I think this was a really good move. So that's really, really useful. It's not binding you to anything. You can just actually talk and find out what your options are. Absolutely. It's such an interesting area of research, Susan, not something I had much experience with, but really great to hear the perspective from a multilateral development bank um, of affected communities and these really big infrastructure projects in particular that we see throughout Southeast Asia. I think a lot of the time we're very fortunate that a lot of research is being done to amplify the voices of the affected communities but it's so interesting to have that global governance perspective as well and to think about the mechanisms that they're attempting to establish and how effective those mechanisms are to provide accountability and a place to air grievances. So thank you so much for sharing your research with us today. My pleasure. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.